Good morning. Testing, one, two, three. Test, test, one, two, three. Um, in addition to, um, well, actually, Linda wanted me to make an announcement um, regarding the tape ministry funds. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, if you wrote a check on the February 22nd, um, it won't be cashed by the church. It'll be, well, hopefully not cashed by anybody because all that tape money was stolen um, at the same time. So uh, if you wrote a check, um, you can rewrite it or at least put a stop payment on it or whatever. But uh, on a, seriously, I just want to thank um, Jim Slaza and Mike Farrell. Um, if, if you don't know how hard it is to come up with a sound system, uh, Thursday I got a call that the sound system was missing. Thursday, Jim came down, took a look at everything. We had a wedding here yesterday and uh, he was able to put together a sound system for the wedding and also for this morning. And you know, those are the kind of acts of service that are appreciated that everybody else, I mean, most of you would have no idea. And, uh, and if you notice, uh, they are wearing black. There are men in black. If you take a look, the two guys standing back there are men in black. They said to tell you they wear black because they're in constant mourning for the missing sound system. So. Anyway, just to, to thank them, I appreciate all that they had to do, and I know that the people, the couple that got married yesterday appreciated that too. Um, in our last meeting together, we began a series of messages that puts into historical context the events immediately leading up to and including the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and ultimately the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, as Jesus travels the road to resurrection, as we will see, he introduces us to folks who, to say the very least, have uh, somewhat confused priorities. And as I was thinking about these priorities and these people that we'll be introduced to, I was reminded of a story that a friend told me uh, that had taken place in an encounter that he had with a gentleman during the Super Bowl. He had gone down to San Diego for the Denver-Green Bay Super Bowl. It used to be the Green Bay-Denver Super Bowl, but now since Denver won, we can say it was the Denver-Green Bay Super Bowl. And uh, anyway, he had uh, an encounter with an individual that I think will help illustrate some of the struggles that some of us go through. But he had got a ticket, and I'm going to call this friend Matthew, and I'm going to call him Matthew in honor of Michael and Renee's son, Matthew, whom I called Andrew all, all uh, last week when I did the dedication. Um, so, uh, so you can give him this tape as a follow-up to last week's tape. So Matthew, I am so sorry. One day you'll understand. Uh, anyway. Uh, so it, we'll, we'll call him Matthew. Anyway, this friend Matthew goes down to the Super Bowl and he had gotten a ticket from his company, he had won it as a gift, and he had got to the Super Bowl and um, he got down there and when he went inside, he couldn't believe that he actually won a free ticket to go to the game. He'd always wanted to go to the Super Bowl. And he, he gets into the stadium and they proceed to show him where his seat is. And uh, he had what was uh, affectionately known in the sports industry as Bob Euchre seats. And, uh, and if you've ever been there or seen that commercial, you understand what's going on. Because Linda and I, when we were working with the Rams, we took our family down when the Rams were playing San Diego, and we got those same Bob Euchre seats. And basically, those seats are the very last seats in the stadium. And if you've ever been up that high, actually, the Goodyear blimp is lower than you. And uh, so it's a fascinating experience, but they're the very last seats in the stadium. Now, if you're sitting up there and you bought binoculars, you you're, you came under-equipped because you actually need a telescope. <laughs> so this guy's sitting in these seats, and, uh, and he can't see anything, but he's got binoculars, and he's checking out the stadium. Now, if you've ever gone to a game and you know that you don't have exactly the best seats in the house, what you tend to do is, since you can't see the game, you look around to see who has better seats than you. And so you're looking around the stadium, and, and there he notices on the 50-yard line, about halfway up from the bench, there is an empty seat midway through the first quarter. At the end of the first quarter, the seat's still empty. And that's a good sign. And so he's looking at it thinking, you know what? I'm going to work my way down there. 
And the guy works his way down, all the way down to the field level. He gets past the security, gets down to that section. He gets down to where this empty seat is. He says, excuse me, sir, is anybody sitting in the seat? And the guy goes, no. He said, do you mind if I sit here? He said, no, I don't care. And the guy sits down. He can't believe this is happening. He said, and as the game's going on, he's watching the game. He says, I can't believe that somebody would have this seat and not show up. And the guy he's sitting next to says, well, actually, that's my seat. He said, well, I don't understand. He said, well, it's, it's my seat. And what happened was my wife died. And we have gone to Super Bowls every year together since 1967. And, um, you know, anyway, that's, that's what happened. And, you know, you're more than welcome to stay there. And he was thinking about it. And as the game went on a little further, he said, well, I don't understand. I mean, couldn't you get, I mean, this is a great seat. I mean, couldn't you invite a friend or a family member or a relative or somebody to sit here at this game with you? I mean, this is incredible. He said, well, no, I, I couldn't ask him to do that. He said, well, I don't understand. Why not? He said, well, actually, because today's the funeral. Actually, the person that gave me that joke uh, said, this is a good Mother's Day story. <laughs> but I said, no, I couldn't do anything like that. Anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is this. There's a guy with a very confused priority. And uh, as we note in our last message, as Jesus was passing through Jericho, he ran, well, actually, as he was approaching Jericho, and even before, he ran into some people that had some confused priorities. He ran into the rich young ruler who had confused priorities and uh, who had everything in life, but he had nothing, and he was trying to figure out, you know, what life was all about. And Jesus exposed what was missing in his life, that he did not put God first. The fact that he said, I obeyed all the commandments, but when Jesus said, well, then the one thing you lack is to go and sell everything, and come and follow me. He turned around and he was dejected and walked away because he was a man that had many things and he was wealthy and he did not put God first. And so Jesus exposed to him that he was guilty of the very first commandment that he should honor God above everything else in his life and he didn't do it. And so he walked away, dejected. And as he was approaching Jericho, he came across a blind beggar who yelled out, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus healed him and gave him his sight. And as he approached Jericho, that took place. And as he was passing through, not intending to stay in Jericho, he ran across a man who also had some very confused priorities. We learned that his name was Zacchaeus and that he was a man whose name meant righteous or pure. That at one point in his life, his parents thought enough of him to name him righteous, that he would be a righteous one or a pure one in the eyes of God. And yet at a crossroads in his life, he decided to walk away from his heritage. He decided to walk away from his family's God and go his own direction. And so here he was a righteous one who took a position as a tax collector, which was far from righteous. And uh, he recognized that he had some very confused priorities because he was a man who became very wealthy because of his position. He had ripped people off. He stole money from people. Rome had, had asked him to collect a certain amount of tax, and he went through and collected way more than he was supposed to. And anything over and above what he had to turn in, he kept for himself. And so he'd dump little widows out into the street, and he would take businesses from people that couldn't pay their taxes. And he became wealthy as a result. So here was a man who at one point in time was righteous in the eyes of his parents or hopefully would pursue that lifestyle and turned far from God and walked from him. And yet here was a man who was wealthy and had everything the world had to offer and his priorities up to that point were like many of ours and that is to just live for ourselves 
to please ourselves, to uh, have what we want when we want it. And then when we get all those things, we're still left empty and something's missing in our life. And Zacchaeus was a man who was like that. And his priorities were upside down. And yet the Bible tells us at this point, as Jesus is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, the Bible says that Zacchaeus has a whole change of priorities. His priorities are turned upside down when he gets to the point where he wants to see for himself who this Jesus of Nazareth is. And as he pursues Jesus, the Bible says he humbled himself. He climbed into a tree. And the Bible says that his humility before God as he cried out for forgiveness to God by these acts of humility that God knew his heart. And he called Zacchaeus and said, today I must have dinner with you. Zacchaeus, come down. And the Bible tells us instantly, immediately, Zacchaeus slid down the slippery bark of that sycamore tree and he received Jesus Christ gladly. And the Bible says that today, because he received Christ, today salvation had come to this man's household because he too was a child or a son of Abraham. And he goes on to say that Zacchaeus said, since I've ripped people off, I'm going to repay them and I'm going to give back to them what I've taken. And the Bible says that the indication of a person that's come into right relationship with God is that not only do they confess or agree with God that what they did was wrong, but they acknowledge it to the point where they repent, they turn from it, and they, act, they, they make acts of restitution. They're going to make it right where it's possible to make things right. They're going to make it right. He wasn't a man that merely spoke a spoken testimony that say, hey, I received Christ and he changed my life, but his life was completely changed to the point where he said, since I've done this to you, I'm going to make it right. This isn't going to be just cheap talk we're talking about here this is genuine from the heart and so his, his conversion led him to a new set of priorities and it's interesting as we go through this and look at that that Zacchaeus was a, a very clear example of how with God all things were possible because if you remember the rich young ruler who said that he had many things and yet he had something missing was not willing to give it up and as he turned and walked away, Jesus said, the problem is it's going to be easier for a camel to climb through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. And the disciples said, well, then how in the world can anybody be saved? God, how can you forgive anybody if it's going to be so impossible? But Jesus said this, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And as I thought back on that story, that encounter that we saw, it made me realize and begin to wonder in my own heart, are there people in my life or your life we come in contact with, whether they're friends or family, relatives, coworkers, a, a teacher, a coach, or whomever that you may come in contact with and you say, it is absolutely impossible that God could do anything in this person's heart. Let me just tell you something that what Jesus is trying to demonstrate on the road to Jerusalem is that with God, all things are possible. And as they saw Zacchaeus and his conversion, the disciples and the people around him were amazed that God could forgive even a wretched tax collector who was one of the most hated and despised people in all of their culture. And yet Jesus reached out and forgave him. And so as we look at this, we begin to realize that, you know what, with God, all things are possible. And so when he said that it was impossible, Jesus said it isn't. And I'm going to show you as we near Jericho and go through Jericho, I'm going to remind you of what you just asked because here's a man who's going to be wealthy and yet he's going to come into a right relationship with the God who made him as he received Christ as his Lord and Savior. And so as we look at all this, as we're traveling towards Jerusalem and the events such as these take place, it's not hard to see and sense the excitement that's beginning to build. 
the excitement that's taking place as people's lives are changed in a drastic way. And you know exactly if you've ever had a taste of that where someone in your life has come to put their faith and trust in Christ and you see the change in their heart, you see the change in their life, you see the change in their, their attitude and in their relationship with other people, whether it's their family, their marriage, uh, their business and how they conduct themselves. If, if you've ever been around that, you know and you, can, and you can sense the excitement that takes place when God is doing a miracle in the lives of people. And as he's traveling to Jerusalem, all this stuff is going on and they're getting pumped up. They're excited because they see blind people now can see. They see rich people that are being saved by God. They're excited about what's going on and they are absolutely convinced that Jesus is about to set up his kingdom here on earth. And in Matthew 21, this is the scene that takes place and it gives us the backdrop to help you appreciate and sense what's going on. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21 as we sense what God is about to do and the excitement that's taking place. Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 1, we read this. It says, and when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, and untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fall, the fall of a beast of burden. It says, and the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid them on their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those followed after him were crying out saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changer and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done and the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And he said to them, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast prepared praise for thyself. And he left them and went out to the city, to Bethany, and he lodged there. It's not hard as we read through this to see that this is an exciting day. There's some enthusiasm that's going on and some excitement and there's a celebration-like atmosphere. And it's the same kind of atmosphere that takes place when a conquering king would come back to the city as a hero. When a savior would come into the city, there's a celebration. And as we see this taking place, this is called the triumphal ent entry of Jesus Christ as we know it. And what's taking place as he comes in Jerusalem, there's excitement, there's enthusiasm, there's anticipation of what he's about to do. And it's amazing to me as we look at this, what day we call Palm Sunday, how incredible it is that, that, that we can have such a day as this. And yet just four days later, we have an exact opposite scene from the fervor and the enthusiasm and the anticipation to just four days from then, there would be an arrest and there would be a trial and there would be a crucifixion. 
It's fascinating as we look at the ebb and flow of what follows here because this was taking place at the time of Passover and Jerusalem's borders are overflowing with those who are there to celebrate the Passover. For those of you who don't know, the celebration of Passover was a time when the Jews would celebrate God's deliverance of the nation of Israel from the captivity of a nation at that time or the world empire of Egypt. And the, and the thought of passing over was when the death angel of God passed over the household of the Israelites whom God had instructed, if you just put blood on your door, if you will sacrifice a lamb and put blood on the door, then God will pass over and he will not judge you. What a wonderful picture that is of the truth of the death of Jesus Christ, that his death and his blood shed for us if we would just believe him and accept him for what God says he is and who he is, that he's the savior of the world, that if we would just believe him, God says that his judgment would pass over us. And that's exactly what they were there to celebrate. And you can't help but feel a little irony that here they were in Jerusalem to celebrate God's deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt. And yet at this particular time in their history, they were once again enslaved to another empire. And this time it was the Roman Empire. And so you couldn't help but feel that there's a little bitterness and anger and a little resentment in that here we are to celebrate God's deliverance from our oppressors. And yet here we are oppressed again. And God, when are you going to deliver us as you promised from those who continually oppress us? And so it wasn't hard to see that their anticipation was that Jesus was about to set up his kingdom and deliver them from the oppression of Rome. And if there's any question in your mind about it, look at, at Luke chapter 19 for a second and see exactly what, what God tells us. In Luke 19 verse 11, that's my heart. I'm excited. That's exciting stuff. Or maybe it's my coat. Hey, there we go. No more. Oh, it still did it. All right. Anyway, look at Luke 19, verse 11. The only bad thing about taking off my coat, you're going to be able to see, man, it's just going to be water just going to start building up right here. Luke 19, 11, it says this, and they were listening to these things, and Jesus had just, this is the whole situation that took place with Zacchaeus, they're now moving toward Jerusalem, he said, and they were listening to these things, and he went on to tell a parable, why? Because he was near Jerusalem, and if there's any doubt in your mind what they thought, God now exposes it, he says, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. There was a sense of excitement and enthusiasm because they were convinced that God was about to set up his kingdom here on earth, that Jesus was going to deliver him from Rome. There was no question in their mind. And what was taking place as we look at this account in Matthew chapter 21, as they were approaching the city, what happened The multitudes began to sing Psalm 112. Actually, Psalm 112 through Psalm 118, the Hallel, or the praise of the Lord, was sung by the priests, 24 priests, would sing on a constant basis the psalm, these psalms of the praise of God during the Feast of Passover. And they would sing two of them before the Passover meal. They would sing the other four after the Passover meal. And so now what's happening here is the multitudes of people who are in front of Jesus and following Jesus began to break out in spontaneity. They begin to sing these praises that only the priests are supposed to sing during the Feast of Passover. And they're doing it four days ahead of schedule. And so something incredible is taking place here. And we need to understand that so we don't miss it. And as we look at this, the crowds knew it was a responsibility of the priest to sing those praises, and yet they decided to take it upon themselves to sing the praises of God because what he was about to do. It's interesting as we go through this because what we need to begin to ask ourselves is, hey, what is going on here? 
I mean, what is going on and what's taking place? And there's six things that I want to share with you that we need to notice as we go through this because they're important to our understanding of what God's doing at this particular time. The first thing that we see as we go through is that the prophecies of the Bible were being fulfilled when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. The prophecies of the Bible were being fulfilled. If you've got your Bibles, go back to Matthew 21 and let me show you exactly what I'm talking about. In Matthew 21, what's happening is God had predicted, he had told the people through his word that this was going to take place at some point in time and he fulfilled what he had promised would take place. And this is incredible and it's important that we recognize it and understand it. Because you have to ask yourself this question, why is this happening or what is the purpose behind what is happening? And the Bible clearly tells us in verse 4 of, of chapter 21, it says, Now these things took place that what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah might be fulfilled. These things took place, this whole day, this whole occurrence, occurrence, this one event took place so that God's word would be fulfilled. That was the reason. That was the purpose. In simple terms, it's this. God had promised the people that it would take place and God is not like man that he will change his mind or that he would lie. And what God says would happen will happen. And it'll happen just as he says it's going to happen. And this is a very important principle for us to learn about the character of God. If God says it, you better believe it. And I'm going to demonstrate to you why you better believe it. Because this is absolutely incredible what we see taking place here. He quotes from Zechariah 9.9. Now the problem with this quotation is, is that Jesus quotes from Zechariah 9.9, or it's quoted here, actually for us. But the quotation isn't in its complete context. If you look at Zechariah 9.9, and you look at the, the, that takes place here, in fact, if you've got it, go ahead and turn to it. If you've got your Bibles, look back to Zechariah 9.9, and it's interesting because Jesus does not quote in entirety what has taken place here. This was spoken saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fall of a beast of burden. And in Zechariah 9.9, we read this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph. Well, he left that out. He didn't say shout in triumph. Why not? Because there would be no triumph. There would be no victory here. That was not going to happen on this trip, on this first occasion. The shout in victory, the shout in triumph will happen when Jesus Christ comes again in his second coming to set up his kingdom here on earth. But he wasn't going to set up his kingdom at this point. And he told him the parable that he was going to go away to a distant country, that he was going back to heaven, that he wasn't setting up his kingdom now, that one day he'll come back and set up his kingdom. But God's people were to be busy doing the work that God's called him to do while he was absent from this earth. And so he didn't say there was triumph or victory that was coming because there would be no triumph and they would soon discover that as the days would unfold that were to come toward the end of the week. He said, behold, your king is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation. Again, he didn't say anything about salvation because there would be no salvation for the nation of Israel on that first trip that Jesus came when he came because they did not receive him as their savior. And he left it out. He is just and, and endowed with salvation, but he was humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fall of a donkey. What's interesting is Jesus told his disciples to go ahead of him into the village and get for him this particular animal that he was going to ride on. Now, what's fascinating, people say, oh, what a miracle it was that they could go in and take somebody else's uh, belongings and that they would take them and they'd let them take them. But you know what? That's reading a lot into it. I believe Jesus was in Jerusalem a lot. 
And it was very easy for him to just make arrangements. Hey, I'm coming and I'm going to need use of this, this animal. And so it wasn't that surprising that he sent his disciples and said, hey, you know what? Remember the day that Jesus said, well, this is the day and he needs it. And he already knew it. Jesus knew what he was going to do. The Word of God tells us what he was going to do. And it's important to understand that. You know, often as we look in the New Testament and Old Testament passages are quoted, very often, for example, let me give you another illustration. Look at Luke chapter um, 4 for a second. Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue. And in Luke 4, we see a similar occurrence where only a certain portion of the Old Testament is shared with those who are listening. In Luke chapter 4, look at verse um, 16. It says this, and, G and he came, Jesus came to Nazareth, which he had, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. It says, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, a specific place he turned immediately to, and he read this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Well, he stopped at that point. It says he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and every eye in the synagogue was fixed upon him. And they were staring at him, waiting for him to explain what he just did. And he said this, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And if you know anything, he was quoting from Isaiah 61, and when you have a chance, read it on your own. But what's fascinating is he stopped before he began to talk about the judgment of God. Because as we look at this, Jesus came at his first his first trip, his first advent, his first coming to this earth was to save people from their sin. His second trip will be to set up the kingdom of God and to judge those who have rejected him. And Isaiah 61 continues with that thought, but Jesus stopped there. He said, hey, you know what? I'm here and today this has been fulfilled in your hearings. And the people marveled and they were amazed that he had called himself the Messiah of God. And they began to become indignant of him. And in fact, as the passage goes on, they were filled with rage. And if they could have, they would have killed him. But he left their presence and left the temple. It's fascinating as we see this, that God's, that God's word comes true as he says it's going to come true. And this whole picture of Jesus riding into the city, sitting on this colt or this, or, or this uh, donkey is a picture of a king. In our day, it'd be like somebody coming into town with a motorcade and limousines. And they understood it. This picture of a king who was mounted on a donkey was not mounted on a horse because a horse was one when you, that you would ride as a warrior that was coming in to conquer a city. But Jesus wasn't coming in to conquer Jerusalem. He was coming in humble. He came in on a donkey. He came in to bring peace. If only they would believe him and accept him as their savior. That was his mission. That was his purpose. And we know that. Why? Because the last time we're together, he said the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he was doing what he was doing. And it's fascinating as you go through and look at Scripture. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me in a minute to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 through 26. And I want you, I want you to follow with me because this isn't going to be easy for some of us who maybe have a tendency to, to drift off, okay? So, so follow me for a second because I'll tell you what. If this doesn't get you fired up, as old old southern friend of mine used to say, he said, if it doesn't get you fired up, then you got wet wood. All right? So that's all I got to say. But what's fascinating is in Daniel chapter 9, we read this in verses 25 through 26, and it talks about what God is going to do in the future, and we read this. 
So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree or command to restore, and look what he says, you are to know and discern. You will know without any doubt at all what God's going to be doing from the date that the issue of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, as we go through this in verse 25, we read this. You will know and discern that from the issuing of a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince. He's saying that there's going to be a command that comes to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, to save some time, there were four commands that came to rebuild Jerusalem, and they all came from different leaders. And Cyrus was one of Persia, uh, um, Darius was one, Artaxerxes was another, and his son was another. And in, in, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles, turn back to there, Nehemiah 2, we are given the actual date when this took place. In Nehemiah 2, we read when this command was issued. And it says in Nehemiah 2, verse 1, it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine, he gave it to the king, and now I had never been sad in the presence of the king because he was his cupbearer. And the king said to me, why are you so sad? And, and are you sick? And he said, no, that's not it. But I said to the king, let the Lord, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And the king says, what do you request? And he said this, if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah to the city of my father's that I may rebuild it. And the command was issued that day that he would go back to Jerusalem and he specifically, Nehemiah, would be responsible to rebuild the, the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Now what's inter interesting about that is he got the decree on 545 BC and it says in Nehemiah 6.15 that the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elu in 52 days. Now what's fascinating as you go through this, we can actually sit down and figure out what day all these things took place. It's important that we do that. And if you go through it, you can figure the exact date. The first of Nisan was March 14th, according to our calendar today, or seven years each, or a total of 483 years until what God was saying would be fulfilled. You follow me so far? And as we go through this, look what it says. In, in, uh, in Daniel again, it says that the way that the phrase is phrased, the meaning of Messiah the Prince is a public event that all the Jews would recognize and understand. So as we're reading through Daniel 9, 25, it says, you're going to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree or command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. You got it? So he's saying that, okay, from the time the command was issued, here it is in March, all right? In March, as we go through it, in March of 445 BC, till the time that this public event would take place, there was a certain number of days. And you can calculate what those days are. Now, as you look at all this, what's fascinating to me as I go back through this, there's 483 years from that command on that date to the date that this public event will take place. And Jesus said that that day that God was talking about through the prophet Daniel was the day that we're studying today and that was the day of his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. How do we know that? Because in Luke 19, 42 through 44, Jesus said this, if you would only have known and received this day of visitation, this day that God visited his people and, and, and basically said, you should know this. 
You should have discerned this. I had already told you, God says, I told you when it was going to take place. This shouldn't come as any surprise to any of you. And we go down through and look at it. And it's fascinating to me because if you look at this, let me, let me share the math with you. Okay, follow me. And I'm going to read this very carefully. In Daniel 9, if you multiply 483 days, uh, 83 years by 360 days, and we use 360 days because that's what God uses in Scripture as far as prophetic months are concerned. We know that from the book of Genesis, for example, when it talked about Noah, we know it when it talks about the three and a half year period of time or the seven year time of tribulation, 1260 days, everything is divisible by 30, and the months that we're talking about are 30 months. Now we got, are 30 days. Now we got more days because of the Roman calendar, which came much later than that. So everything's by 30 okay and that's what we're looking at so now follow through with me for a second as we go through this if you multiply 483 days okay 483 years times 360 you get 173,880 days now for us to understand it divide that by 365 which is our calendar system don't forget 116 leap year days that's important and the difference between March 14th to whenever the triumphal entry is. Now also don't count 1 BC and 1 AD twice. And the answer that you'll find as you look at that is going to be right on the nose, April 6th, 32 AD, exactly the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem as God had said he would. That's a whole bunch of work to come to this conclusion. What God says, he means. What God says, he means. And you ask the question, what was God doing on this day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem? What he was doing was what he said he was going to do. Now, I don't know about you, but I sit there and I read this and I'm staggered. 173,880 days. God told his people 173,880 days before it happened to the day, to the moment that it would happen, it was going to happen. I don't know about you, but I think God's got everything pretty much under control. You know what I'm trying to say here? What God is trying to get across to us is, you know what is fascinating is the religious leaders, the people who said they were experts in scripture, the ones who said they understood God and his laws and they understood the word of God, the ones who were teaching the people all about God, they missed this. They missed it. And they were spending all their time studying the word of God and God says you can know it and you'll discern it. But you know what? Your heart has to be right. What's the biggest problem with people understanding and discerning God's will in their life? Their priorities are messed up. They go into the word of God and say, God, this is what I'm looking for. Now let me find it. Instead of saying, God, I don't know what I'm looking for and I don't understand very much, but I know this, you're in control of everything. And if you want me to know something, show it to me. You teach me. I don't know. I don't understand. Help me to understand you better. Their priorities are messed up. They said, we don't want this guy to be the Messiah. We have our own agenda. We have our own priorities. We've got our own schedule of events. We know exactly what we want, and we're not about to lay it aside for what God's going to tell us is the way it's going to be. And that was their biggest stumbling block in accepting Christ as their Messiah, the one that they waited for, the promised deliverer from God. They wanted God to set up his kingdom now and get rid of Rome, and that's the only thing they were willing to accept. They didn't want to accept God's plan. They didn't want to accept God's timing. And you know what? I think a lot of us can relate to that. You know what I'm saying? 
We want God to fit our time frame. And you know what? That same pride is what kept the rich young ruler from laying aside everything and following Jesus Christ. We need to say, God, you know what? Not my will be done, but your will be done. I don't have an agenda anymore. You show me what you want me to know. And that's amazing because as we go through this, look at else we find happening in Matthew 21 is these people were pumped up. They, had, they, had, they, had, they were filled with messianic hope. They were filled with, you know what? Jesus is going to go ahead and he's going to set up his kingdom. And this is going to be incredible. And this is going to be a great day and we can't wait till it all happens. And the reason that this happened very simply was why? Because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And in fact, let me give you some homework. Read John chapter 11 this week. John chapter 11 is the turning point in Jesus' ministry and it's a turning point in the hearts of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The Bible says this, when Jesus healed Lazarus, and this is an interesting thought too, Jesus came to Lazarus at his grave and he had been in the tomb for three or four days and, and his sisters were concerned that if you, if you call him out, man, he's going to stink, he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And I like what one guy said, he said, you know, it's a good thing he called him by name, otherwise every dead person would have came out. <laughs> so, you know, but the bottom line is this, is that he came out. And he was a walking, living, breathing, talking testimony of the miracle of God. And if you know anything as scripture is concerned, John the Baptist doubted at one point when he was in prison whether Jesus was the Messiah. And he sent his disciples back to Christ and said, ask him, are you the one that we're waiting for? And how did Jesus answer it again with the word of God? He said this, you go back and you tell John that the lame walk and the blind see and that I've come to proclaim release from the captives. And he went back and said, hey, remember that God promised his Messiah, his Savior, would be attested by the miracles or the signs or the wonders that he would do, that he would be validated from God, that blind people would see, and that's never happened in the history of the world. And when the blind beggar yelled out, Son of David, have mercy on me, and Jesus opened his eyes, he had opened the eyes of many people that were blind. And they were all amazed because why? They knew, they knew this much about the Savior, that he would open the eyes of the blind. The religious leaders were all confused. They got too in-depth with their own program and their own position in life. And the people were seeing all this going, this isn't hard to see. This is this is what God's been promising us. And so the blind could see and the, and, the, and the deaf could hear and the dead were raised from the dead. And it says this in the account of John chapter 11 about Lazarus. It said that the religious leaders, when they got together, decided from that moment on that he must die. He was messing their plans up and he must die. And that's what we were told. But these people were pumped up. They were excited. They began to pr praise God. Hosanna the highest. Blessed is the name of the Lord, the King who's come. Hosanna the highest. What they're saying was praise God from this one who is sent from above. Isn't it fascinating? All throughout Jesus' ministry, he said this, I've come from above. I've come from my Father. I'm the bread of life which comes down out of heaven. He said, I've come from God. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. He sent him from heaven to earth. He sent him from the, from, the, from the throne of heaven, the domain of heaven to earth. Why? So that if we would believe in him, we would not perish but have everlasting life. That's what was going on here. The third thing as we see is this is the second time that this took place, but Jesus cleared the temple. He cleansed the temple in Matthew 21. If you've got your Bibles, go back there and look what he did. I mean, there's a definite display of authority that's taken place here by Jesus. He's saying, hey, you know what? Not only is he saying that, you know, you've made my father's house a den of robbers, but what he says at this point is this. Notice this. He says, and Jesus entered the temple and he cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said this, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, 
but you are making it into a robber's den. When he cleared out the temple the first time, he said, my father's house. And here we are in this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he was making one last stand, one last plea that they would turn to him. And he said this, my house. What was he saying? It always cracks me up. People, I hear this all the time. People read through the Bible and say, but Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, you, you know what? You're just like the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are looking at the Bible and you want it to say what you want it to say. Read it for what it says. It says, my house, you have turned into a den of robbers. And he went in and he cleaned house. And he made a point. And the point is he said, hey, I am. I am. And they knew who he was. They just didn't accept him for who he was. He cleaned the place up. As he goes through, we also see this, which is fascinating too. And that is, look at else he does. It says in... Uh, Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You know what's fascinating about that? It's the blind and the lame and anyone with any infirmity uh, 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 couldn't go in to the temple. They weren't permitted in the temple. And Jesus said, you come in here. This is my house. And I'll do what I want in my house. And he opened the eyes of the blind and he caused those who were lame to walk. And he did all these wonderful things and he displayed the power of God. And in Acts chapter two, as Peter was preaching to the people, specifically to Israel, he said, and Jesus of Nazareth, attested by God with great signs and wonders and miracles, you put him to death. The evidence was overwhelming. We see the same today, the power of God is always displayed. When people give their life to Jesus Christ and their life has changed and it's radically different than it was just a few short moments ago and he does a work or a miracle in their life, we either can accept it as a miracle of God that Jesus Christ is alive and that he can change hearts today or we deny the power of God and everything therein. And as a result, we reject what God has to say. Do you follow what's happening here? The miracles of God, the power of God was displayed as a sign and wonder so that people would believe God, what he says about Jesus, that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, that he was the savior of the world, that he's came to save us from our sin. And he tried to demonstrate it every way that was possible. He rode into Jerusalem as a conqueror, as a king, as a humble servant yet. And they all knew it and they cried Hosanna in the highest and they put down palm branches before him and they laid their garments in the street, which is an honor that you give to a king. And he rode in and it's the only time that Jesus ever went into Jerusalem in that manner. He always just snuck in, snuck out. He never made a big deal about it. But this day, why this day? Because 173,880 days ago, God said that day was coming and Jesus fulfilled that day right on schedule. And he walks in and the power of God was displayed and the people of God and the praise of God was encouraged. Look what happens here. It says, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he had done and the children were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Notice this, children saw it. Isn't it Jesus who said, unless you come unto me like a little child, you'll never receive the kingdom of God. Why? Because it takes childlike faith. But that childlike faith doesn't mean we set aside all reason. We can look at the evidence. We can examine the evidence. And children saw what Jesus was doing and said, that's enough for us. No one's ever done this. What more do you need? 
And all the religious leaders were sitting around opening up the scriptures, trying to figure out how they can somehow disqualify him. And little kids were saying, what are you nuts? Can't you see what he's doing? We have people all in our world today. People see the change in another person's life and they're sitting there trying to disqualify it, trying to discredit it. Oh, they've grown up, they've matured, they've got an education or whatever. No, Jesus Christ changed my life. That's all I'm here to tell you. That's what a testimony is all about. You want to know why I'm not the same person I used to be? Because on that day, February 16th, 1978, I invited Jesus Christ into my life. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. But I received him and my life changed from that moment on. And I am who I am today because of the result that God had taken place at that moment in time. And he continues to be at work in me today. And the same with many of you. And people want to disqualify it. They want to discredit it. And little kids said, you know what? But I recognize it for what it is. And they were praising God. And you know what they you know what the religious leaders told Jesus to do? Tell them to stop that. Tell them to stop that. When Peter was proclaiming the wonderful thing that God did in his life, the religious leaders came to him and said, "You stop that." When you're proclaiming what Christ has done in your life at, at your business or in your home or in your families or on the baseball field or football field or in the classroom or wherever you are, people are going to come to you and they're going to say, "You stop that now." But you know what? You can't stop that. How can you stop that? Jesus said to them in another passage in the same situation, he said, hey, even if I told them to be quiet, the stones themselves would shout out the praises of God. Why? Because God had destined this day to happen and it was going to happen just as God said. And the last thing is this. And the plan of God was announced for all of mankind, specifically here for Israel. And he said, do you hear what they're saying? And he said, yes. He said, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? It always cracks me up because Jesus didn't hesitate. He wasn't very politically correct. But he never hesitated. When Nicodemus came to him, he said this one time, wait, let me understand this right. <laughs> You're a teacher of Israel. <laughs> You're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Whoa, wow, I think Israel's in trouble. And what he's saying is the same thing. Have you not read? Certainly you must have come across this in your studies at some point. You spend so much time in there. Why don't you open your heart and allow God to talk to you? He said, certainly you've read this. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, thou hast prepared praise for thyself. It says, and he left them. And he went out of the city to Bethany. It says that he left them. In closing, let's look at one last passage. In Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through, 41 through 44. And we'll close on this. It's the same account, Luke's version of it. And he says this. It says, and when, when, Jesus approached, when Jesus approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw a bank up before you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize, listen, the time of your visitation. In Daniel 9, we read the same thing, that Jesus had warned them if they did not recognize the time of God's visitation, if they did not receive him as Messiah and Lord, that judgment would come upon the nation of Israel. And in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and the nation of Israel was scattered throughout all of the known region. 
And that's why when James writes his letter, he writes to those who are scattered, to the diaspora, to those who are scattered all over the place, that were scattered because of the judgment of God. He said this, and this is what I want to close on, and I want to make very clear. If God says it, he means it. I think God demonstrated that very clearly in 173,880 days before this day took place, that the day would take place exactly as he said. And when Jesus warned them and said, because you have rejected me, you will be scattered and the temple will be destroyed. And in 70 AD, God's word once again was fulfilled as God said, don't miss this and don't drift off. God says clearly, if you reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will be judged by God for all of eternity in a place called hell. That's what he says. And if everything else that he has set up to this point happens exactly as he says, that will happen exactly as he says too. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would what? Not perish not be judged by God, but would have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge it or condemn it because the world had been condemned already. Folks, the good news of what we see here today is this. If God says something in his word, it's truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus warned the nation of Israel, if you reject me, you will be judged by God. And they have been judged by God. He warns us, the Gentiles, he says, if you reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you too will experience the same judgment of God. But the good news of the gospel is this, that you and I can receive Jesus Christ and believe him for the forgiveness of our sin, to look at the evidence, the overwhelming evidence as a young child and humble ourselves and say, Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe because I receive him, not because of anything that I've done, but because of what he's done. And I believe because of what you say in your word that I will never be judged before you because you promised me that. And I want to receive him right now as my Lord and my Savior. And I want to pin all my hopes for my future on what you say because your word is reliable and it's dependable. And the Bible says to those who receive him, to them he gives the privilege to be called a child of God to those who believe in his name. Folks, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, do that today because rejection means judgment. Acceptance means eternal life and a place with God in eternity for all time. And if you are a believer that's already invited Christ in your life, may I suggest this. If God's word says it from now on, just believe it. And don't go in with your own agenda, but be open to what God has to say. Because our agenda will keep us and it will be a stumbling block from God being able to speak to us in the direction that he wants to take us. Father, thank you for your word. We just thank you for the excitement that we see as we look in your word. That you have everything under control. That everything that you say is true. And that your plan will come to fruition. God, I pray for those who don't know you, that they would receive Christ today, that they will resolve that once and for all and escape the terrifying judgment of God. You tell us for it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God, we just thank you that it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from you for those who would believe in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for your word. We just thank you for what we see here. And we look forward to what we learn as we continue the road to resurrection. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.